you know, if your goal ultimately is the growth of your church, then sometimes you might be tempted not to say the hard thing to somebody because that means that they might bail um, or they might stop tithing or, or something like that. And the challenge for Christian leadership is the willingness to say the hard thing to yes. disciple people, uh, even if there might be a short-term cost to that. Maybe you end up with one less person engaging with your church. everybody. Welcome back to the Good Theology Podcast. Pleasure to have you all with us today. Hope you're doing well. Thank you, as always, for tuning in and listening. Do us a favor, help us spread the word. Post us on Instagram, Twitter, wherever you hang out on the internet would be so, so helpful. Uh, you can also uh, give us a five-star rating because you love us that much. You can subscribe on YouTube. You can do all those things. It all goes a long way in helping us to uh, get our voice out there. Today, I am joined by a uh, special guest, Simon McIntyre. Simon McIntyre currently lives in Miami, Florida, having formerly resided in Christchurch, New Zealand, in Sydney, Australia, and in London as well. Simon uh, is a phenomenal writer. He writes for enjoyment, first and foremost. He's published numerous books. He also has a blog, it covers everything from the trivial to the profound. I'll let him speak more about that in a moment. Simon also has his master's in theological studies from Chester University in the UK. And he has a connection to me personally. He is a founding member of C3 Church Global, the church movement and family to which I belong, an international family of related churches. Simon, along with his wife, Valerie, were also the C3 European regional directors for a decade and they now oversee the region here in America. Simon, it is an absolute pleasure to have you on Good Theology today. Welcome. Oh, Jake, it's a pleasure to talk to you, my friend. Thank you. How are you? Oh, I'm very well. I'm enjoying Miami's weather. Yeah, what's it like right now? Still humid, as always? You know what? It's not bad. I've, I've been living here for over a year, you discover there actually are seasons. <laughs> actually our season so the temperature yeah, hurricane is, season and not hurricane season yeah, that's right yes yes batten down the hatches season and um take the hatches off season <laughs> well it's uh it's good to have you with us i'm excited to talk to you because you have a uh a forthcoming book uh which we're going to be discussing uh, but before we get into that why don't you just say a little bit about uh your blog uh how people can engage with you online Okay, so simonmcintyre.net is the actual address, I think. Isn't that terrible? Um, so they can do that. I'm on Instagram, simonmci is my Instagram. Um, and Facebook, just Simon McIntyre. It's the only photo of a reasonably good-looking male that comes up with the name Simon McIntyre. That actually is, that actually is a really good rugby player. Actually, I looked that up a moment ago, yeah. His name's Simon McIntyre, and he's this big, burly black guy. That is not me, and and he would he would also like to say that I am not him. <laughs> were, were he to listen to this, yes. So I've lost my train of thought. What was I saying? We were just clarifying which Simon you are. You're not a rugby player, no. But... So on my website, Jake, I just basically write whatever comes into my head, which is actually quite dangerous. 
Um, largely, I get quite good engagement. I've made a few people angry, but I don't do that intentionally. Um, but, you know, you still have to deal with what you have to deal. So I write about anything from the trivial to just, you know, like, I don't know, cars or a dog on the road or, I don't know, clouds, right up to the prof profound, which would be um, our faith in Jesus, uh, the power of Scripture, and from where I'm coming from, trying to rightly discern what it's saying without all the overlays we get so used to. So that in a, that's me in a word. Also, by the way, you forgot something. You forgot something very important. I have an aerobatic pilot's license. Now, that's my greatest achievement in life, aside from having three children and nine grandchildren. That's the other achievement. Yes. No, I won't be caught in the air with you anytime soon because of that. No, no, I'll make you feel even more sick than you do than you do having to talk to me. Yes. <laughs> well, Simon has a book that uh, is coming out soon uh, called uh, All About Joshua from the Scriptures, Lessons in the Wilderness, What I Learned When No One Was Looking and What I Did When Everybody Was. So talk to us a little bit about this book, Simon. I want to discuss it with you today. Uh, what's the synopsis and why did you feel like you needed to write it? Do you know... It I, I wouldn't normally say this, but I was pondering this today. It came out of um, like a an experiment, no, not an experiment, an experiential moment when I felt what the Lord spoke to me. And the book of Joshua, do you remember when the Lord spoke to, to Joshua when he was about to go to the land and God confronted him? Uh, and he said, you know, are you for us or against us? And the guy said that the the the, the being, the Lord said, neither. Basically, it was about who was Lord. Uh, it wasn't about questions. So I had this a beautiful experience where I felt the Lord asked me to do something. And somehow it came connected to the book of Joshua. And then I saw in that reading of the book of Joshua, I saw three major, um, I wouldn't call them principles, they were more like life factors that I think contributed to Joshua eventually um, superseding Moses's leadership. So that's where it came from. And then in the writing of it, Jake, I realized that uh, I just literally read a book by a very good Christian writer, an English journalist. And it was he was um, reflecting on the leadership skills of a whole bunch of football coaches. And, you know, it, it was a well-written book. It was um, informative. It told you a lot about these guys' lives and their, their hopes for their teams. But, you know, I walked away with this sort of empty sense in me that that's not Christian leadership. We don't, that's not our template. Our template is a crucified Messiah and, in more practical terms, um, the Apostle Paul's style of leadership. And I, I got quite disturbed that so many young Christian leaders are reading books about men whose main aim is goals, literally goals, and also feeding the machine of the sports world they're in. I don't doubt they love their job. I don't doubt some of them are superb coaches, and some of them are even finer people. No doubt. It's not a criticism. It's just a concern that we're getting our leadership teaching and pattern of, of coaches, either men or women, who actually don't have the cross of Christ 
and the glory of Jesus and the well-being of God's church as their prime motivating factors. And that disturbs me, that that's our food. So if you go to a leadership conference, sometimes if you close your eyes, you don't even know you're in a church setting. You're just in this well-crafted, well-scripted, and, and at times brilliantly put together presentation of leadership skills. And uh, it just, and I'm, I, I, I know that I'm far from the only one who thinks like this. I doubt this is an original thought, but it just struck me that there are better templates for us to learn to be great leaders. And you know, in the Christian context, a great leader can often be a person barely known. And that's sometimes the, both the cost and the wonder of Christian leadership. Yeah, no, I think you're definitely picking up on a theme that um, is very prevalent. And as you say, lots of people are, are thinking about, um, I think the probably the proper term is corporatism, right? Where we just yeah take wholesale things from what's happening in uh, the corporate world and try to import that into church leadership and think that it just applies um, apples to apples. And, and it's it's actually just not the case. So uh, the book came out of a personal revelation for you, um, but also there's some motivation there in terms of wanting to say something helpful to the church um, so that we can improve. A bit, totally. Yeah, absolutely. And I, it's, it's not as though I have this massive kick in me against the leadership models that have been looked at. I just think they're inadequate. And, and Is there something to say about... about uh, God's, you know, um, his grace that uh, pervades the natural world and how we can learn from uh, people and um, entities that are outside the church. Like, what's the line there between, hey, this can apply, this can be brought into the church. Uh, how should we go about doing something like that? I think where, I, I would draw the line at where um, the process of leadership no longer helps people, but it but it only supports the notion of leadership, or it only feeds a corporate structure, which ultimately starts to to roll into the principalities and powers thinking that uh, a guy, particularly a guy, an American prophet, but far from the kind of prophet we would read, called William Stringfellow, was uh, wrote quite brilliantly on. Uh, principalities and powers being embedded in organizations. So I think where where leadership is both releasing and blessing, and you know, very general terms, to people, I think the the idea of a sort of creational mandate works absolutely. And there are some superb leaders who have no faith in Christ because of the, like the creational mandate of subduing, of being in God's image, which although terribly broken is not completely obliterated. So, yeah, absolutely, I think there's a place for it. And and I will occasionally listen to one of those leaders and say, what, what a great leader. But our leadership is more by example than by order. And that's one of the big differences. So I think that the, the line that's crossed over to me is when leadership becomes, you know, this is a terrible phrase these days because I'm not even sure what it means anymore, but leadership becomes abusive. It becomes dictatorial. It becomes self-serving. Then I think that creational mandate is being perverted utterly and totally. 
It seems like it's a, a fairly common thing in the corporate world nowadays to be pretty people-centric in the way that companies are structured. Certainly, yes. that's a, uh, a a big selling point that's advertised in the tech space um, and all of the perks and benefits that come along with working for particular companies. Something in me, in listening to what you're saying, still goes, okay, well, just because they have a people-centric ethos doesn't mean that it, it is fully and totally compatible with the church. Oh, no. Try to tease that out a, a little bit more because... Oh, I, I, I totally agree with you um, because I think a lot of it is because it's it's kind of like the social contagion of leadership models. If you're not on the new model, you're out. So clearly somebody has reacted against the overpowering, domineering nature of leadership maybe 20, 30 years ago or the unilateral nature of leadership. Um, and so now we have this kind of soft term of people-oriented leadership. I don't believe it for a moment that all companies adhere to it. I still think there are people, there are bosses who are cruel and unkind and abusers of men and women, and, uh, and they can use all the terminology in the world. It's like um, companies saying they are, um, you know, like um, feminist-friendly, well, you know, it, it might be a good idea to be, but many of them only say it because they have to. Right. And I think that it's just, it's what you're meant to say, so they all say it. It's like it's like these very divisive issues in the trans world where people feel they have got to say something proactive, otherwise they get labeled as transphobic. Right. But really in their hearts, there's been no change or no love of people in that world. So I do think it's it's, to me, it's oversold and underrealized. I wonder if a good distinction would be that for the church to be uh, centered on, uh, well, I believe the church is centered on worshiping God and glorifying God. I think our yes. relationship to him is first and foremost. And then as a, a corresponding layer to that, our discipleship of people, development of people. So the, the, the centric nature of the church on people is focused on uh, sanctification, on holiness, and helping them to abide in Christ and producing change in them, mm -hmm. um, whereas uh, the people-centric notion in the corporate space is not focused on change, it's focused on affirmation. Um, and the ironic thing there is that when, you're, when your strategy is a, a, just affirming people all the time in terms of, you know, what they value and who they say they are. Ultimately, that is self-serving because you are, as you say, there's, there's no actual love in the heart. There's, there's just, uh, what's the most efficient way to have these people uh, fit into my company and to, to serve our vision, our goals? Um, and so, as you say, the, the goal of the, the flourishing of the company remains the same. Which that's business. That's not a bad thing. Businesses no. are are started to make money to flourish. That's fine. Um, but in the church, our goal is the flourishing of the person, and that means bringing challenge and pastoring people so that they don't remain the same. It's not about affirmation for the sake of fitting them into our model. It's about sanctifying them uh, so that they are the the end result. Would, yeah, would that yeah. be maybe a good line to think of? Over the cross? Yeah, I would agree with that. I think Christ's likeness is our goal. And for Christ's likeness to be our goal, 
And if we take Jesus' example of forming that Christ-likeness, then he rebuked as much as he affirmed. And uh, I don't know that people take to reproof very well these days. They take it as a personal insult, like somebody abused me, but actually you told them to stop being a jerk and gave them a way out of it that could make them a better person. But they read it as manipulation and abuse, which means they're about as open as a closed book to any real change. But I think the gospel's demand on us is that we our character becomes formed like Christ so that it has kindness and has it has um, forgiveness at its base. I think it's one of the great un, it's one of the great forgotten keys of church life is the power to forgive. In fact, that's the keys of the kingdom of heaven and earth, not some sort of binding of demons and loosing of demons. That's not what it's saying. It's actually releasing people in forgiveness. And uh, the reason we, and so uh, anyway, that's another topic, but, but I definitely agree. If that's, the, if that's our goal is to transform people to be like Jesus, that is not going to be an easy journey. And that will take, that's going to take reproof, patience. It's going to take being pulled up on things, being challenged. And sometimes but, it might work against your goals. You know, if your goal ultimately is the growth of your church, then sometimes you might be tempted not to say the hard thing to somebody because that means that they might bail. Um, or they might stop tithing or, or something like that. And the challenge for Christian leadership is the willingness to say the hard thing to yes. disciple people, uh, even if there might be a short-term cost to that. Maybe you end up with one less person engaging with your church because they don't take it well. Uh, no, and they don't. And because we're well, we, we don't like losing people, which is not wrong in itself, but it's certainly wrong when it becomes our, you know, our guiding star. I mean, you think of Jesus with the disciples. He said, are you going to leave me as well? When he said the hard thing about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Now, anybody with half a brain knows that he was not, he was not um, agitating Literal. the cannibalism. Mm -hmm. but, but they left him, and he didn't sit there trying to hold them back. He, so he was prepared to have less pink ball, but more people like him. Mm, wow. I love that. That's great. Yeah, I like it on paper. <laughs> yeah. Well, the fact is, is that Jesus is the builder of his church. And many times the, the opposite happens and people do respond to discipleship. It doesn't make it easy, um, but the Holy Spirit is in the mix of all that and, and people end up growing. I mean, that's the, that's the reason the church has made it through the last 2,000 years. She's not as fragile as she appears. No, um, it's just not fragile at all. Yes. And, uh, anybody that says uh, being a Christian is a cop-out has never been a Christian. Let's come back to Joshua. So um, you, you mentioned three major life factors that preceded yes. Joshua stepping into uh, Moses' shoes. Uh, maybe let's yes. talk a little bit about that and um, show us what you're seeing there. Yeah, love to. So if you look at the life of Joshua, there's not a great deal of information. Um, there are some things that are maybe more speculation or maybe Jewish. Um, they may be more like Jewish, not so much Jewish history as though that's uh, any less history. It'd be more like um, maybe Jewish mythology or something is that Joshua probably did his training as a soldier in Egypt. He didn't just arrive in the wilderness as a soldier. Um, so he obviously did training in Egypt. However, so... It seems like it could be an obvious fact. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I think it would be too. You know, so I, 
a myth is the wrong word. It'd be more like a a healthy speculation. Um, so there were three things I saw that struck me. There may be more, but I only saw three. And um, I think there's no particular order of preference, but um, the first one is faith. And I, I know that I'm not using, I'm not talking about faith as a commodity. Um, I'm talking about faith as in what God says rather than what I want. And therefore I use faith to get that. Uh, faith's not a principle. Faith is a, is a reaction to what God says. It's not a principle I use to gain my own will. Does that make Very sense? Good. Yes, it does. So what, what Joshua did, God spoke to them and said, the land's yours to take. And he was only the one of two that actually did that. And I saw in that a major test. Will you believe what God says in spite of the contrary and in many cases, frightening evidence and Joshua's answer was yes therefore that faith would have then rolled into the law of Moses will you believe what God revealed to Moses will that law become your um, law your way of doing things your modus operandi however we like to say it so that was the big one and, and I do spend some time on that about they, they had faith in what God said they went and they said it's possible it's frightening. It's uh, it's not easy, but it's possible. And so I think that was lesson number one, the faith lesson. Anybody in Christian leadership has got to at some stage face the faith lesson. What has God said to us? What has God said to me? Am I prepared to put my life on the line for that? Especially, and I think with an emphasis on the acceptance of hardship. Because saying Nothing yes to God, God ever says to you is ever going to lead you into an easy life. No, no, it's not nirvana we're going towards. It's a land full of giants. But that's our promised land. And uh, giants are kind of spooky, you know. And I've heard all sorts of stories about what these giants are meant to be. Um, but I don't care what they are. Anybody that's over seven foot is going to spook me. Especially if they have a spear in their hand. <laughs> They're threatening you. <laughs> Yes, sir, whatever you say. I think that was the first, that was a very big test for Joshua. And that test cost him 40 years in a wilderness because he agreed with what God said. Wow. And, and it isn't interesting. Caleb's mentioned more as, as around the topic of faith, but he never became the inheriting man. That was Joshua. So there are the other two reasons. The second reason was that he became a servant to Moses. And so, and in the end, he never had to reinvent Moses. He just, he caught what Moses did. Like he wore a little bracelet called, what would Moses do? What was that? WWMD, not WWJD. So he, he, he followed Moses. He did what Moses asked. And again, that was, Moses asked him to go into battle. That's no lightweight issue. So he wasn't a he wasn't a passive servant. He was an active believing servant. So that's the second big thing. Can you serve another man's vision for 40 years and not get what you thought you were going to get? Can you do that? And that's a really big question because lots of young, uh, particularly young men and women in leadership, their eagerness outstrips their ability and their eagerness 
outstrips the the capacity to today learn to serve. And I'm not talking about just put chairs away. I'm talking about a much bigger thing that serving the vision of, serving under the same word as. I look, I I don't have the spirit of faith that Phil, Phil Pringle has, but I've served under it, benefited from it, and seen how it works in my own life because I was in that world. And then, of course, what it does give you is the ability to take what you've learned, and then when the day comes where you may have to lead on your own, then it works naturally in you rather than you facing an impossible gyre that you could never deal with unless you'd learned the process through um, through servitude. That was the second big one. But the last big one, I'll sorry to your last one, just to maybe to talk about that for a moment. What one thing that that sticks out to me about Joshua's promotion into leadership is that it, it followed the course of time according to God's providence. Yes, Joshua did not try to get ahead of God. It was God's timing, not Joshua's timing. So he responded. He didn't initiate. Right. Yeah. Which, as you said a moment ago, when you were talking about faith, and I've never thought about this before, but Josh, the cost of Joshua's yes in what what going into the promised land would look like that prepared him to to say yes to as you said Moses bringing the law down from Sinai he could he could trust God's word to him even through another man um and even though that may have cost him personally um and God had prepared him for that and he was willing yes. to stay with that posture his whole life long until God was ready to promote him. That's right. And yeah, we don't see one ounce of himself promoting. What's really interesting, at the end of his life, he fades into anonymity because what he did, he took God's people into their inheritance. But once he'd accomplished that, he, he didn't go and do anything else. And his, his passing, I mean, the scripture mentions it, but it not in the terms of Moses, David, or Jesus. Just it's like he faded into a happy old age. Drink my wine and look at the sunset obscurity. Do it again, Lord. <laughs> Give me that. <laughs> You're too young. I'm. I'm the real. I'm the one. Get that. No, I don't. I don't mean now. I just mean eventually. Yes. Um, yes uh, well, you mentioned something interesting about. Uh, what Joshua received in distinction from what Caleb received. Because Caleb is Joshua's counterpart, and as far as we can tell, he says yes in every sense that Joshua says yes and incurs the same cost. Do you think that that's just a, you know an example of God's choosing, God's predestination, that Joshua was the man for the, the next stage of leadership, or is there something deeper going on there? Um, I wouldn't look at it much deeper than that. I would just say that Joshua for other reasons, was the right man than Caleb wasn't. Caleb inherited. He was a, he was considered a great hero of faith, um, possibly more so than Joshua, but Joshua had these other factors that maybe he was already working alongside Moses anyway, so that when, when it came to the 10, 12 spies, is that Caleb didn't have that position of connection or privilege just because of the, just how life works out for you. There's no reason why a person like me should be doing what I'm doing. Um, I was a cynical, 
not unkind, but cynical person who should never have done the distance that I've done. But I was just around the right people. I had I used to I used to bother Phil and Chris terribly. I'd go to their house all the time and I never thought that I shouldn't. But nobody else did. <laughs> so when it came to leaving and going to Sydney with Phil and Chris, it was like the groundwork was already done, but it wasn't like they didn't know me. And there were other people around who were more capable and more gifted than me, but they weren't in that sphere. So maybe that's just what Joshua was. But I think there's another factor that sets Joshua aside that we've never read of in Caleb. Okay. And that's the third issue. That was a nice segue. Um, that the third issue is, is presence. So when, when we read that Joshua lingered in the tabernacle, the 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 some of my reading on that is that it means a lot more than he just stayed in a room where he felt extremely good and he felt the presence of God. And actually the, the word presence also is, is linked up with the word of scripture. So Joshua hung around the presence of God when nobody else was and when no one was looking, and he hang, and he hung around and hung and clung to the word of God when nobody else was and when no one was looking. So those two factors to me are massive issues. He had a dedication to waiting in God's presence and a dedication to reading scripture. And and I think things out of out of uh, whack timeline wise, when I think about Joshua hanging out in the tabernacle, would, would not have the tablets of the Ten Commandments been there in the Holy of Holies? So he's in the presence of the word while being... Yeah, that probably will, yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I think because those came earlier on in that journey. So I would say that he saw those tablets in that presence. But he also would have either, that it was either written, recorded, or remembered by Moses, all the things the Lord had said to him, aside from just the Ten Commandments. It was always you know, the explications of that law. What did it look like in these settings? How did it pad out? So that wasn't just written at you know, as the book of Deuteronomy or book of Numbers, it would have been in perhaps the sense of of Joshua sitting with Moses in the tabernacle and Moses is... Talking about God's word. Why not? So I think that those factors did mark him out as different. He, he had this private love of God's presence and private love of God's word, which I would think I have in... I came to Christ when I was 19 and I for some reason, got influenced by this old German preacher called Walter Butler. Nobody's heard of him. And he would literally sit in God's presence in a room for hours, and the Lord would visit him. And I was so fascinated by this. I'm, I'm quite a, I'm quite a, um, um, I'm not a mystical person per se. I, 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 I kind of walk around philosophy and practical wisdom a lot easier. But this man had a mystical something on him. And so I would literally sit in a room for an hour. And you know how distracted you get trying to do that. Totally. But over time, I used to get this sense. This is the only way I can describe it, and it sounds weird. I'd get this burning sense in my stomach area. Of, of, no, not burning, an alive sense, something alive. And it wasn't, you know, early digestion problems. It was just something alive in me. So I can go into the, into the Lord's presence by myself a lot quicker these days. I don't have to wait for an hour. 
So I don't spend that hour these days. I'll spend short or maybe a half an hour or 15 minutes, but I get there quicker. And it's that in that sense of God's presence where most of the ideas I have of things to do come out of. Yes, yes. Talk and then about I'm just an reader of Scripture. Okay, right? say, say more about this because I think this will be really helpful for people. So you start out as a younger man giving God an hour, sitting in a room. What are you doing to prepare to go into that space, if anything? And what does your time in that space involve? Well, it was it was uh, earlier in the day, so I've always been an early, early, and I'm even an earlier riser. So that helps. It's not like something you can do at twelve o'clock. No noise. I need I need about three hours in the morning to myself to 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 live properly. And I strange, I find my own youngest daughter is exactly the same as me. She's up at four o'clock, goes to the gym, and then has about three or four hours before she has to deal with the children. So um, I would be in the room. Um, I would, I would walk around the room sometimes, Jake. I would see fluff on the floor and put it in a rubbish can. I would write something on a list that of something I had to do. I'd get distracted as as all get up. But eventually, I started to kind of see past, you know, the kind of whir of your brain. The other thing I would do is I'd have scripture with me, which I'd either read after or before. There's no set pattern to me. I find sometimes reading it after your soul is more rested and you can hear easier, but either either or. And so that's what I would do. And and to this day, I'm up in the morning early. I go for a walk and pray, you know, pray in tongues, pray in English, watch the sunrise here in Miami, and then come home and sit in my room and I'd read. I always read a theological textbook, a chapter or two every day. I read the scriptures, then I'll wait in the Lord's presence. It's just it's what I do. And I and maybe because of that, I saw that in Joshua as a major factor, whereas others might bypass it as just one or two scriptures. Great. Wonderful. Well, as we uh, just start to wrap up the conversation, what what is your number one hope for people to, uh, in regards to what you want people to gain from reading Lessons in the Wilderness? I would love for young leaders to, to focus more on prayer and scripture than reading leadership manuals. I see. Um, I have personal preferences in my reading, but that's not what I'm talking about. Um, my personal preferences aren't coming to this. It just scripture is your great tool. Learning how Paul looked at things and did things very important. People have sort of forgotten that Paul wrote most of the New Testament. He's one of, he's the great architect of the church, you know, behind Jesus, of course. So I hope that they get more of a hunger for prayer in God's word, which is just, I mean, any anybody who wants to do anything will tell you exactly the same. Um, right. Whether I'd love, I'd love a lot of people to buy it. That would make my Christmas nicer. But whether they do or not, I'd love people to be influenced by its message. So that would be my hope. It'll be on Amazon.com. I think it'll be on most of the Amazons.com.au.co.uk, etc. You can either buy it or it'll be available for download. It'll be out with a list. Uh, we're aiming for May. Wonderful. May 2023. Oh, probably, yeah, aiming for later May. It may even push through into early June. Okay. Great. So Let's cl close on this uh, when you're 
when we first opened the conversation, your opening remarks reminded me of a scripture that I read just the other day. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, Paul is closing this letter to the Christians in Corinth. Obviously, his relationship with them is uh, a touch strained. Um, and he makes this, I think, this interesting statement that maybe connects to what we're talking about. Uh, he says, uh, let me begin in verse 2. I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time, and I repeat it while absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others, since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. And then here's the verse, verse 4. For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him. So there's that kind of... Uh, pattern, that paradigm you were talking about earlier about crucified Lord. Yet by God's power, we will live with him in our dealing with you. So there's a, a tension here, or maybe it's not a tension, maybe it's a paradox. I'm not sure what to call it between weakness and power and how that comes into play in Christian leadership. Why don't you just close with some uh, remarks on that? Yeah, I think when he says we're, we're, weak, we're weak in the sense that we're crucified with Christ, I think that's what that's probably referring to. So that's like an ontological reality. Yeah, yeah, that's how strength is in the crucifixion and, and the weakness, and also through not relying upon. Paul was battling up against um, all of those things like privilege, position, honor, culture, etc., and the Christians were falling for it lock, stock, and two smoking barrels. So he was asking for a different way of doing things. And uh, even though it appeared weakness, it was one actually creates great strength. I think that's what he's saying. And out of that, out of that strength, he's he's saying, if I need to, I'm going to use that strength towards you for your benefit, for your sake. Yeah, yeah, he would. But it was always to me, it was his last, the last thing he would do was be used that he had tremendous authority, but it was an authority that was underpinned by selflessness, and and strangely, a lack of authority. Yes. Because he found it only in Christ. Yes. Yes. Very good. My guest is Simon McIntyre. Wonderful example to us young men and women in the kingdom. His forthcoming book is Lessons in the Wilderness. What I learned when no one was looking and what I did when everybody was based upon the life of Joshua. Simon, thank you so much for joining us on Good Theology. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We love you, and I will be back next week with my co-host, David Campbell. God bless you guys.